Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Hello, welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Franklin of Eastern Plastic Surgery, who is a specialist plastic reconstructive and aesthetic surgeon, and he's a fully qualified member of many associations, including the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, Australian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, and International Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. He completed his specialist plastic surgery training in Melbourne. He's a regular speaker. He speaks at international conferences and has also been involved in numerous clinical trials for major pharmaceutical and medical device companies. As well as this, he's involved in the teaching of specialist trainees and students at both Melbourne University and Monash University Medical Schools, as well as lecturing dermal sciences students at Victoria University. This week, we are talking about skin cancer, but from the perspective of a plastic surgeon. We're going to be talking about different surgical techniques to use for different types of skin cancer, as well as touching on Mohs micrographic surgery, which is a specialist form of surgery used to treat non-melanoma skin cancers when it's felt there's a high risk of the cancer spreading or returning or the cancer is in an area where it would be important to remove as little skin as possible, such as the nose or close to the eyes. So get ready to learn a lot about skin cancer and I look forward to bringing this episode to you. I first started by asking Dr. Lynn what he thought was the biggest misconception about skin cancer. So I think the biggest misconception in the community is that it's a condition that only happens to older people. I think that statistic is pretty frightening in Australia in that for a skin cancer such as a basal cell carcinoma or a BCC, the likelihood of having this problem in a lifetime is actually higher than what we think. One of the, there was a recent paper that suggested that it's as high as two thirds of all Australians who are Caucasian and live in Australia all your life, that over half of all these patients will get a BCC in your lifetime. And that may sound very scary, but as you'll see from later on in the interview, this is actually a very much a manageable problem on many levels. But one of the things that we do see is that younger patients, even though they have the awareness of the slip, slop, slap, and the, you know, looking for the A, B, C, D, E's, and even in schools, the no had no play sort of initiative, the, the awareness is there, but they sort of had this almost a godlike complex. It's never going to happen to us. It's a bit like what we're experiencing now with the pandemic. It's something that, oh, it'll happen to other people. It'll just be a cold. But as we have seen around the world, bad things can happen to young people too. So I think it's really important that young listeners are aware of this risk and are doing you know, the skin surveillance, the skin checks, which you can do yourself or with your local GP from as early an age as possible. Yeah, that's fantastic advice and a huge misconception. You're right. We've got this sense of being completely invincible. And often when you think about any illness, 
people will say, and you, you've probably heard it hundreds of times, I never thought this would happen to me. Mm. So it's this whole idea that even though we know the statistics, once it occurs, there's this almost disbelief. So we're going to talk a little bit more about some of those management strategies today, but I'd love to start by hearing about your career and the work that you're doing. Sure. So I'm a Melbourne-based plastic surgeon. So I trained through the plastic surgery training program through Melbourne and through and rotated through a number of Melbourne hospitals. I've been in private practice for about eight years now. And uh, as with most plastic surgeons in Australia, I have a both reconstructive and a cosmetic aspects to my practice. So with regards to the reconstructive aspect, skin cancer is actually the mainstay of, of my work in this regard. And I work both in public and private for that. And with regards to the cosmetic aspect, I mainly do facial sort of cosmetic and non-surgical treatments for my patients. So currently I have a clinic, Eastern Plastic Surgery, as well as EST Clinic, which is based in the city in Box Hill. And I have a position as the site director of the Department of Plastic Surgery at Box Hill Hospital, which is in Eastern Health. Well, it certainly keeps you busy. <laughs> yes, it certainly does. Yes. So in our pre-interview, we spoke about different management strategies for skin cancer. And those management strategies will really depend on the provider right? And as a GP, their management strategies may be different for you as a plastic surgeon. So how do these treatments differ? And when someone is diagnosed with a either a lesion that needs further investigation or a biopsy, what does that journey look like? Okay. So because skin cancer is such a widespread problem in Australia and it's such a common problem, there are a number of practitioners who I guess would work as a team in managing this condition. The majority of skin cancers that we tend to see, or lesions, as you say, are either self-diagnosed, meaning that patients have saw it themselves or a family member saw it, or sometimes a hairdresser sees it in your hair and all that sort of stuff, or it's diagnosed through what's called a skin check or a skin surveillance. And that's usually performed by either a general practitioner or a dermatologist, in, at least in Victoria. So having diagnosed that lesion, the majority of simple lesions and with good, and, and that's a really important point, Mani, is that with good surveillance and good awareness, we can often find these lesions relatively early and they're relatively small, which makes the job of the doctor much easier. And in turn, that means that it leads less marks or less scarring and less complex treatments for the patients. So the majority of skin lesions when they're first diagnosed are managed by GPs who do an excellent job across the board in managing these conditions. So the GP may feel that this is a lesion which is very suspicious for skin cancer, in which case they may recommend that it be removed, or they may sort of think, oh, well, this could be a, this could be a skin cancer, but could also be a benign lesion, in which case they may choose to do what's called a biopsy, which is a sampling procedure where they take a small part of the lesion and that is then sent to a pathologist for the full diagnosis. In cases where the lesion is being diagnosed as a skin cancer, or it's slightly bigger than what might the GP might be comfortable to do in the office, or in some cases the patient prefers to see a specialist, then those patients are often referred to either a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon. Now, a lot of people have a lot of confusion about who does what in the specialist field, but I guess as a general rule, the burden of skin cancer is managed both in the specialist sphere by, by dermatologists and plastic surgeons. As the name might suggest, plastic surgeons will 
do more operating and dermatologists might specialize in more non-surgical treatments of skin cancers. So the patient may then be referred to a specialist for management. And there is 101 different ways to manage skin cancers very successfully. And that decision will be based partly on the cancer or the nature of the lesion, but also to do with the location of the body, the patient's skin type. And at the end of the day, the patient participate in this care as well. So they're, they're the most important member of the team. So they have a, a real say in how their skin cancer is managed. So a dermatologist may, for example, recommend a cream or non-surgical treatments such as cryotherapy or electrodesiccation for the treatment. A plastic surgeon may say, well, you know, you've been referred to me because you've got a cancer in your nose and the best treatment is surgery, in which case we would speak to the patient about surgical treatment and the reconstruction thereafter, as well as look after the patient in the post-operative period of time to help them manage the scar and allow these sort of, I guess, the stigma, the stigmata of skin cancer surgery be more camouflaged and so and to help patients come to terms with some of these problems that you can have post-op. In very complex cases, the care is escalated to what we call a multidisciplinary team. And we're talking sort of larger cancers or cancers that may have already spread to some parts of the body, such as lymph nodes or other organs. And the real buzzword now in cancer care, not just for skin cancer, but for all cancers, is a multidisciplinary care, meaning lots of doctors, lots of specialists getting together to talk about the patient's condition. And that has been shown time and again to yield better results, better patient satisfaction when it comes to cancer care, because it means the patient doesn't have to go to different specialists. You know, I don't have to say, go and see Dr. Smith, who's an oncologist. They all come to the same place at the same time. So that's an oncologist, a plastic surgeon, a radiation oncologist, a radiologist, a pathologist, allied health. So it's all discussed in the one sitting rather than having the patient travel all over the place. You can see the obvious advantages of this, and this is now the standard of care for more complex skin cancers. Wow, that's fantastic to hear that it, it has changed and that professionals are able to all work collaboratively together rather than having patient files go from one clinic to the next and then the stories from the patient then being told, which sometimes can be misheard or miscommunicated by the patient as well. So that's really great to hear that that is now becoming the gold standard in care. You were talking about in terms of the types of skin cancer removal, and this will determine obviously on the types of skin cancer. Now you mentioned that skin cancers, uh, when they're found early, the outcome is much better for the patient. And that's not just with melanoma, but also non-melanoma skin cancer and non-melanoma skin cancer. People don't necessarily think of it as scary, but I'd like to hear some of the risks of perhaps not treating a non-melanoma skin cancer, what this can do in terms of moving into other areas of the body and also the potential disfiguration as well. Sure. You're absolutely right in that people tend to associate morbidity or problems with the sort of longevity, I suppose, with more nasty skin cancers such as melanoma. But the reality is that even though melanoma is now widely recognized as a highly malignant skin cancer, it's still a less common skin cancer relative to the others. The most common types of skin cancer in Australia are or BCC or basal cell carcinomas 
or SCC, which are squamous cell carcinomas. And these are cancers which are derived from the most abundant cell type in the skin. These are sort of the keratinocytes and the basal cell layers um, within the skin. And with regards to proportion, they take up the vast majority of the skin cancer incidence, as well as the burden on our health system in Australia. So even though we see so many skin cancer patients that you get this real sense of this spectrum of what people's expectations are. And there are absolutely patients, like you say, who go, well, you know, my uncle's had a melanoma or all, all I've got is a BCC. So really we know BCCs don't travel. So we don't need to treat that or we don't need to treat it urgently. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have patients who are, are highly anxious about BCCs and they come to see you almost in tears. So with a BCC, and our role would then be to say to the patient, look, you need to be reassured because we know that this very common cancer, the BCC, is not associated with what we call metastasis or travel to other parts of the body. But there is a large number of, of skin cancers that we do see in Australia, and some are less aggressive, such as a BCC, and some are more aggressive, such as an SCC or a melanoma. And there's a lots of others in between. So I think the general rule would be that if you are suspicious that there is a lesion which is changing on your body, or you've been told by your doctor to get this lesion checked with a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon, that should occur without delay. Because even though some cancers are less likely to travel, they will get bigger they will erode into deeper structures. So for example, a lesion on the nose, which grows from a one millimeter to a three millimeter lesion is very significant. Now that may not have the same significance if they were on your arm, because it just simply makes a slightly longer scar on the arm. But if it's on your nose, it's the difference between a very simple, very straightforward surgery to close the wound versus what we may have to do, such as a skin graft or a skin flap. And on someone's nose, that is a very significant difference. It leaves much more obvious marks and scars. So just because a cancer is considered a low-grade cancer, or sometimes even a pre-cancer, it doesn't mean that the care should be delayed in any way. Yeah, that's really important and a great point as well. When would you recommend, say, to see a plastic surgeon over a doctor for skin cancer removal? You mentioned earlier that it can be a patient choice, so perhaps they'd like to see uh, a specialist, no matter what type of skin cancer they've been diagnosed with. But just from your professional opinion, what are the differences and, and when would someone, uh, when would it be necessary to go from one to the other? Okay, so perhaps I'll answer that by saying that the majority of skin cancers are very well managed by GPs in their clinics. And because patients, particularly elderly patients, are more likely to have recurring problems with skin cancers or new skin cancers which pop up, it's much more realistic, I suppose. It's much more practicable in a long term, from a long term basis, for the patients to have a local point of contact who can manage the majority of their problems. So for plastic surgeons, the referrals that we most commonly see are cancers which are larger or more aggressive, meaning that they might require surgery which can't be done in the GP's office. So for example, if a large operation is done on the patient's body, the patient might require a general anesthetic. 
If that's the case, then they would need to see a plastic surgeon because we would have access to an operating theater, whether that be a public or a private operating theater, and anesthetists who can provide the appropriate levels of anesthesia. So the size and the type of skin cancer is one reason. Perhaps another reason would be the location of the cancer. So for example, if the cancer were on someone's eyelid or lip or a nose or a ear, or they're on special parts of the body, then the GP may say, well, these are cosmetically important areas and a plastic surgeon may have more expertise to be able to manage these and have specialized reconstructive techniques like skin grafts and skin flaps, which can more effectively hide or reconstruct those areas. And finally, there are the, another reason would be for if patients have more advanced skin cancers. So the patient may have skin cancers that require multidisciplinary teams to look after, in which case these teams only really exist in hospitals and that would fall into the realm of uh, care by, by a specialist group, if you like. Yeah, I see. And how are mucosal skin cancers usually handled? Is that usually with a plastic surgeon? Mucosal meaning oral mucosa, nasal yeah. mucosa, and yeah. that sort of, uh, okay. So mucosal skin cancers are less common than I suppose skin cancers per se, partly because there's less mucosa and they tend to be less sun exposed. And there are very specialized risk factors for mucosal skin cancers, uh, such as smoking and so on and so forth. So mucosal skin cancers are also often diagnosed by GPs or dentists, and they're managed usually either by that group of doctors, or they may be managed by a plastic surgeon or MaxFax surgeons. So the MaxFax surgeons are specialized surgeons who have a dental and a medical background. To be honest, most mucosal skin cancers or mucosal cancers that we see are managed as part of a team. Uh, as you can imagine, there's not a lot of mucosa for us to play with. So often these cancers tend to be slightly more advanced. So they often require reconstructive procedures, which might fall outside of something that could be done in the office, let's say by a GP or a dentist. But having said that, they're all part of the team. And uh, I think everyone in Australia works pretty well together in a fairly collegial manner to be able to manage these. Yeah, how interesting. So we're going to talk a little bit more about techniques, more specifically the techniques that you use as a plastic surgeon. We'll touch on a little bit of some of the other techniques that are available. But how do you determine the most suitable skin cancer removal technique when someone comes to see you? So if we look at the majority of skin cancers, which are what we call primary skin cancers, and the mainstay of treatment from a plastic surgeon's point of view is obviously surgical excision. When we look at the actual, when we assess the lesion itself, we get a feel for obviously the location, the size, the depth, and how fixed or mobile it is relative to deeper structures in the skin. In the majority of cases, we will recommend surgical excision. And depending on what the cancer is most likely to be, whether it's a melanoma or SCC, or, or based on previous biopsy results, we would determine a surgical margin. And what that means is how much normal skin you plan to take around what is most what is obviously the skin lesion to ensure that we get the whole thing. The aim of all surgical excision is to have complete or full excision of the lesion, both from a macroscopic, or which means that from what we can see with our naked eye, but also from a pathological perspective, which is what the pathologist can see under a microscope. So the first part of the treatment is to have the lesion excised. 
And then the next stage of the treatment will be just to determine the best reconstruction. So obviously that's all done at the same time in the vast majority of cases. And in terms of reconstruction, plastic surgeons use a huge variety of different techniques, the simplest of which would be simple closure, in which case we use sutures or stitches to close the wound. But in special areas, we may choose or may be forced to use other techniques such as a skin graft which is a surgical technique which moves skin from one part of the body to the other. So for example, if the skin cancer on someone's nose, then often we would choose to use a skin graft because if we were to close the wound, it often leads to this distortion or a deformity of the nose, which is often unacceptable. So when we choose to use a skin graft, we may look at the thickness, the texturing, the coloring of skin. So we would choose a donor site that is both easy to camouflage, but it has the best characteristic match with the defect or where the skin is missing. So a really good example will be for the nose, let's say from the left side of my nose, I might choose skin from just in front of the left ear. There are a lot of subtle differences. So for example, in Australia, because we drive on the right side, so you sit in the right side of the car, the right side of our faces tend to be just subtly darker compared to the left side of our faces because we have more sun exposure on the right. So if it's the cancer from the right side of the nose, we might choose skin which has a similar sun exposure, similar thickness, similar texture, which is usually in front of the ear here. And it's an area where we, you know, as we get older, we develop a couple of wrinkles. So the, the donor site can be just very easily camouflaged into an existing wrinkle, whereas that skin can then be transported to the nose. And it often gives a, a, an excellent cosmetic result in the fullness of time. The skin graft is only one technique. There are other techniques such as skin flaps, and there's a huge variety of skin flaps that we may, that we can employ depending on the location, the size of the cancer. And they can range from very simple skin flaps, which are local flaps, to very complex skin flaps, which maybe need to be transported from other sites in the body. So I guess that's a bit of an overview of the reconstruction that we may choose that we would discuss with the patient beforehand. Once the skin cancer surgery is complete, the patients are then followed up in the rooms. And usually at the follow-up, two important things occur. One is that we would discuss with the patient the pathology result, because usually by that time we'll have the pathology report. And that's your usually the point of definitive diagnosis. You know, the pathologists have looked at the cells, they've made a determination of the type of cancer, and they've told us whether the margins are complete. That's the first part of the consultation. The second part is for us to check the wound to make sure everything's healing well, and also to educate the patient about scar management, about how best to care for the wound in the early stages, in the medium term, in the long term, to achieve the best cosmetic result. And I guess the final part of that consultation or the post-op care will be to ensure that the patient has really good surveillance. And often that's done by referring the patient back to the treating GP if the GP has a skin cancer or a skin surveillance interest. In some circumstances, the patient may choose to go to a dermatologist or a business such as MoleMap or MoleScan. And essentially, if once that plan is put in place, then that sort of completes, I guess, our role in terms of the surgical care of a skin cancer. I see. And when it comes to a technique called Mohs technique, are you mm. able to explain what this is and when it may be used? So Mohs technique is a specialized surgical 
pathology and reconstructive techniques was developed by dermatologist Frederick Mose. And it's in Victoria, uh, used by dermatologists who have special training in the most surgery techniques. So the most surgery has all the elements of skin cancer treatment, as we've already discussed, which is essentially diagnosis, surgical treatment, pathology to ensure the cancer is in fully excised, and then reconstruction and surveillance. So it has all those elements, but the most surgeon who in Victoria is a dermatologist will actually undertake the excision and the pathology themselves. So whereas traditionally the surgery or the procedure is done by one practitioner and the specimen is sent to a pathologist who is a specialized doctor who only looks at pathological specimens, um, that those two steps are combined into one. So the experience for the patient might be that they have the lesion removed, but before it's reconstructed, the doctor who has just done the excision then goes and takes the specimen immediately and checks under a microscope using specialized pathology techniques to ensure that the cancer is entirely removed. And then if that's the case, then they may come back to do the reconstruction or another plastic surgeon might come in and do the reconstruction. But if it's not clear, then they will go back to the patient and take more right there and then. And then they'll look at that second specimen under the microscope to ensure that the lesion is entirely removed before the reconstruction takes place. Now, clearly that has a lot of advantages relative to the fact that the patient will have that full assurance that the lesions remove at the same time. It also means that the doctor who's doing the surgery will be able to look at the specimen themselves. And often that allows them the sort of, I guess, a perspective that may be missing if the two doctors, two separate doctors were to do those tasks. I guess there are also disadvantages in the most technique, specifically that often the patient are there for a long period of time. Often the patients are awake and they're sitting either in the operating chair or sitting in the waiting room with a dressing sort of open over an open wound. And that experience can be a little bit unpleasant for some patients. And to be honest, that's, it's not for everyone. There are some patients who would come and say, look, I just want to be asleep for the whole thing. And I just don't want to see any, be aware of any part of that or have any, any memory of that experience. So there are pros and cons with this technique. I guess the other thing would be that in Victoria, most surgery is relatively limited to certain centers and certain dermatologists that do it. Whereas in other states in Australia, they're much more common. So my understanding that in Queensland, they're much more common than in Victoria, this most technique. So I guess it's another technique which requires all, which has all the elements of traditional surgical treatment for skin cancer, which is done by different doctors with a different set of advantages and disadvantages. Mm, that's really interesting to hear about that. And I'm wondering why it is more prevalent in Queensland. That would be interesting to know a little bit more about that. In regards to the margins, how often, or the process that you go in, are you when you're starting surgery, do you typically know the margins that you're going to be taking? Or is it only once you cut into the skin, you're taking out the skin cancer, that you realize how big or small those margins are going to be? That's a really good question. And like all good questions, there's not a simple answer. So I'll try my best. So basically, depending on what the clinical suspicion or the biopsy result is before the surgery takes place, we often have a pretty good idea of the margin that we're aiming to take. Now, as an example, if it's a if we knew or, or were suspicious that the lesion was a relatively low-grade cancer, like a, like a BCC, we would usually say, okay, 
about a two or three millimeter margin in this particular case is usually enough to ensure that in let's say 98 to 99% of cases that we'll get the whole thing in the first go. Whereas for a more complex or more aggressive skin cancer like melanoma, there are very specific guidelines which are published by NHMRC, which is a government body that oversees the research and treatment and guidelines of medical treatment, I suppose, which, which comes out every six or seven years, which are updated every six or seven years, uh, which govern the recommended guide, the, the margin for a melanoma. So depending on the type and the, the aggressiveness or the level of the melanoma, we may be going in for a five millimeter margin or a 10 millimeter margin or sometimes even more. So it would depend on the type of skin cancer as the primary driver of the planned margin. But as you noted in, in your question, what you plan is not often, is, is sometimes what you end up with. And that will be determined by intraoperative assessment. So what we assess at the time of the surgery, but also by the pathologist, the surgery is complete. I guess it's very hard to argue with a doctor with a specialist pathologist who has a, a microscope can measure in microns, you know, hundreds of millimeters. So usually we would accept the pathologist margin as being the real margin. And you're right, it does mean that in some cases, there are instances that we see of incomplete margins or inadequate margins. And you may not know that until after the surgery is done. So we always warn patients about this before the operation, that that is a possibility of having to have the surgery a second time. Having said that, Australian specialists have a vast amount of experience looking after skin cancers, and that would be a, a significant minority. I mean, I would say that, and, and it's an actual, what we call key performance indicator or a KPI when we audit our performance, both in private and in public, so that you know, provided your treatment is done by a qualified Australian practitioner, you can be assured that there is a very high standard that we aim to achieve when it comes to incomplete margins and treatment of skin cancers in general. So even though that that possibility always exists, it is a very, very small possibility. Yeah. And I'd like to see the positive in all things. And while skin cancer is definitely not a positive, just that skin cancer is so prevalent in Australia, it means that the professionals that are treating skin cancer is just so much more experienced and has so much more hands-on experience. So it explains why margins are almost always covered in that first instance, which is I'm sure a relief for many patients as well. So when it comes to the actual surgery itself, I'd really love to just hear a bit more of a visual. What is it that you're looking for in the skin? Can you visually see skin cancer, whether it be SEC, BCC, melanoma, they're all going to display very differently, but is that what you're looking for? You're using a visual element to remove the cancer? Yeah, look, I wish we could show you some photos or videos uh, as part of this, but I'll do my best. So basically the answer is yes. We very much rely on a visual element as part of the assessment and as also as part of the surgery. So I guess at the end of the day, with our naked eye, we can't see cells. So we won't be able to tell definitively that one cell is a skin cancer or not. But the reality is that the majority of the common skin cancers in Australia, it, well, it's a skin cancer. So it is something that is visually accessible. So the, one of the things that we do when we are planning the surgery is that we will mark out what we think with visual and also with touch, 
No, so obviously we would actually palpate or examine the actual cancer. So we use all those visual and sort of touch cues to allow us to determine where we think the margin of the skin cancer is. And then based on the pre-surgical planning, we would then mark out a margin around that. So essentially, as we are doing the surgery, we are constantly visualizing, I suppose, in some ways, the knife traveling through the skin and just ensuring that everywhere that we're actually cutting, we're actually cutting into normal skin. So not onto the cancer, but just a little bit beyond the cancer at a predetermined margin. So that might be two or three millimeters, that might be five or maybe more millimeters. So as we're cutting under the skin to get to the depth or trying to get the deeper part of the cancer out, we're also mindful, firstly, of other structures that we may not want to injure, such as nerves or vessels or muscle and other sort of anatomical structures that we're wanting to preserve, but also to ensure that we're not coming across anything that looks or feels like an extension of the cancer. Now, admittedly, that is not something that is always easily determined. Now that often, we'll get a clue often through experience and having done thousands of this, that we are in the clear. But I guess we would always say to patients that you never 100% know until the pathologist have looked at it. One of the ways that we help the pathologist is to orientate the specimen that we sent to the pathologist. And what I mean by that is, if you can imagine this poor pathologist sitting in their office and all they're getting is these little specimen jars with the little bits of sort of skin that's coming to them it's very hard for them to visualize well where's this bit of skin come from or where how do i actually orientate that so often when we send off these specimens we actually help them by saying okay well we'll make a mark so we essentially put a stitch where the 12 o'clock position is by the clock face and then the pathologist will look at that and go aha so the pathology slip says okay this is coming from the nose let's say or the cheek and then the doctors, the surgeon has put a stitch where the 12 o'clock is. So they can actually orientate that. And when they issue the report, they may say, look, it's all pretty clear. Or in very rare circumstances, they may say, oh, you know, you've just come really close on one margin to this, to the cancer. And that is 0.25 millimeters away, which is pretty close. And that position is 10 o'clock on your specimen. So that when the report goes back to the surgeon, we say, okay, well, you know, it's pretty close and it's at this point that if I had to take some more, I would take it from that point. So there are lots of little clues that we use and there's a lot of little clues that we give each other to assist with maximizing patient care. That's so fascinating. It's like this secret language between surgeon and pathologist. <laughs> so you were talking about that post-care which is obviously really important as well for someone to ensure that they're looking after their wound and then they're ensuring that they're picking up any other skin cancers that may be appearing on their skin as well. So that skin check, mole map, et cetera. How do you recommend that your patients care for a scar following a skin cancer removal via surgery? So there's two aspects of that question. The first is the scar care. Okay. So, and then the second is the surveillance for skin cancers. So I'll address the first one first, which is scar care. Now, everyone puts a lot of emphasis on the quality of the surgery and the qualification, the specialist, the experience of the specialist, and that is very important. But relative to what a scar might look like and how it matures, that is the surgery itself is really only part of the whole picture. A really important aspect of just maximizing the cosmesis after surgery actually falls on the patient themselves. So what we tend to do is we'll educate the patients and say, look, 
a, a, an immature scar is often quite unsightly. You know, we've all seen it before, you know, after you've had a sunburn or after you've scratched your, you know, knee or something like that, or kids have fallen. And the scars are usually quite pink and raised at the early stages. And that's because the type of collagen that's in those scars is an immature collagen. And they often do look thicker and more raised and they'll pinker and they look more discolored. And over time, the body goes through a maturation phase. And this phase can go from months to years. So the reality is that when we see fantastic scars on, you know, on our friends or as I say, you know, you might know someone who said, oh, I've had this little thing here. And you go, gee, I can hardly even see that scar. That actually has taken place over a number of months and years. And it takes that time for the body to break down the immature collagen and to lay down more mature collagen. Now that process happens naturally, but there are things that we can do to assist with the maturation process. And the simple things that people can do at home will include things like massaging the scar and using an appropriate, good quality moisturizer because scars don't have any sweat glands. They tend to be quite dry, particularly in Melbourne, in Australian sort of climates. So massaging and moisturizing is a must. And we would recommend that that happens twice a day for at least two or three months after the surgery. And there are other aspects of the care, which if, I guess, particularly if the lesion, if the scars on the face that people can take a lot of, need to take a lot of care. And that's usually compression of the scar and using specialized products such as silicon for scar care. Now, it doesn't mean that patients have to walk around with a silicon tape on your nose. It often means that after the massaging, patients use an appropriately high quality silicon gel, and that gel can be applied to the area and the gel actually solidifies into a little, it's almost like a very thin invisible tape. And on top of that, you can apply sunscreen and you can apply your makeup if need be. So the three important aspects of scar care are moisturizing and massaging using compression or a silicon product, and also to protect it from the sun because scars are more fragile, they're more prone to sunburn. And, and even if it didn't get sunburned, but it was exposed to sun all the time, then the color differences often makes the scar more obvious. You know, the rest of the skin might tan, the scar might stay quite pale, for example. So those are the things that we, uh, well, often through our nurses and therapists in the rooms, we will educate the patient about and we, and we often give them some written information and recommend certain products that they may wish to use. So that's the scar care aspect. The other aspect, the really important aspect is that if you've had a skin cancer already, it's an indicator of risk, isn't it? The fact that you've had a BCC doesn't, you know, the, the one BCC you've had on the cheek doesn't make it it doesn't travel to the other cheek or to other parts of the body per se. But the fact that a person, particularly if a young person has had a skin cancer, it often indicates a certain level of risk. It just means that your level of sun exposure with mixed with your type of skin at your age puts you at a higher risk perhaps of, compared to someone who is of the same age but has never had a skin cancer before. So it is a bit of a warning sign. Surveillance is really important. So much like a dental checkup, we would recommend that patients see the GP or another practitioner for a skin check every six to 12 months. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily a painful or expensive exercise, but it's a really important thing to allow new lesions to be picked up really early, which will simplify the treatment. At the end of the day, the benefit is actually for the patient themselves.
Yeah, that's really important. And it goes with what you're mentioning earlier is that the patient is the most important person in that whole kind of treatment program Mm. and that whole journey that they're on board with it as well, because ultimately what they do is going to either perhaps prevent further skin cancers or having them checked much earlier as well, which we know is going to be a better prognosis. Frank, I'd like to hear about how skin cancer treatment has changed just since you've started. You've been in the industry over a decade now. How have you seen techniques and protocols change in skin cancer? Well, I think probably the biggest change over the last decade or more is that the community has a much better knowledge and awareness of the importance of sun protection and skincare. So I think we almost are in a different, I guess, era now of skin cancer care because, you know, from a very young age, you know, my children go to childcare and kinder and uh, without a hat, there's no play in the playground. And people are so much more aware of sun protection and cancer detection and surveillance. So I think that's probably one of the biggest changes that we've seen. There's a much greater use of technology. I think specific photography and telehealth, which really in the last six months has seen an enormous boost in its use. So there are some surveillance, I guess there will be clinics or businesses now that rely on telehealth, rely on photography. And there are devices now which automatically compares, you know, the photo of your back, for example, to the same photo taken under the same light you know, 12 months ago, and they can actually tell you that this lesion or this particular lesion has remained unchanged and other lesions have, have, have increased in size. So that is something that's really revolutionized and it will continue to revolutionize skin cancer care in Australia. And, you know, as you say, because we see so much of it, I think Australia is at the forefront of this and many other countries will look to us and, and to learn from our experience with regards to skin cancer care. I guess a final thing to say with that is more of a, a general comment about evolution of oncological or cancer care as a, in general, beyond what we've said about multidisciplinary care and how that's become very prevalent and it's become the standard of care, treatment of more advanced skin cancers have also changed in that more targeted therapies or immune-related therapy or immunotherapy, it's also known as, has become much more prevalent in cancer care. And a lot of what we see in advanced cancer care, you know, patients that we pass on to the oncologist after skin cancer excision is complete, we're seeing those patients do a lot better. And I'm not just talking about living longer. Uh, I'm talking about less exposure or need for you know toxic or traditional chemotherapy immunotherapy is effective and it's much less toxic as a as a rule and you know patients are you know at the end of the day living longer as well and having a better quality of life because of these advances in the oncological field and that's a really positive thing that we're seeing with skin cancer care over the last 10 years as well yeah how encouraging and it must just be really nice as one person in that big care team of someone that is diagnosed with something like an aggressive melanoma, for example, that you are seeing that not only you're able to do a great job with the surgery and minimize scarring, but the actual prognosis and their lifelong, I guess, well-being is enhanced as well, just from some of those changes that we've seen in the recent years. It's really exciting. And immunotherapy has really only been widely used in Australia for the last, what is it, two years or something? So, yeah, are you just, are you seeing anything revolutionary on the horizon or do you just see that it's a bit more of a snowball effect in that all of these things are going to be more common practice? 
I think it is more of a, it is more, as you say, a bit more of a snowball effect because we're seeing changes every day, not just in detection, but in treatment, but also in post cancer treatment and well-being as well. So I think, and this is the way it should be, is that advances and new technologies and new techniques should happen sort of in parallel, I guess, abreast of each other. There's, it's almost a shame if there's some fancy new skin, sort of skin cancer technique that comes out from a surgical perspective, but patients are still having to undertake very toxic post-cancer treatments. And I think it's great to see that everything's moving on all fronts, on a broad front, if you like, and that and that we can all sort of progress as a team. And I think that's really been the buzzword, the multidisciplinary team, and sort of it's the way that doctors work together, that if there's one thing that, that has really changed in the last 10 years, it's probably going to be that, is that uh, the doctors are getting together. And, and I think from a patient's perspective, it's very reassuring to know that oh so last week my case was discussed and at that meeting were 12 specialists of varying you know ex varying levels of expertise in varying fields and then there's usually a coordinator that is in charge of communicating that to the patient so that I think that would I guess if I were a patient I would find that very reassuring and I'd find that comforting to know that that was happening. Yeah, in such a challenging and sometimes traumatic time. Absolutely. It's got that stability. And I was just thinking it'd be great to have this same conversation, say five years down the track and see what's mm. changed then, because so much has changed in the last few years. Mm. But Frank, I'd just love to for you to share, where can people find more about you and the work that you're doing? Okay, so patients can go onto our website. So we have a couple of clinics and there's the Eastern Plastic Surgery website as well as the ESP Clinic website, which is more for the cosmetic treatments. But certainly within our practice, there are several plastic surgeons um, who practice and you can find out more about myself and these other specialists within that website. I work at Eastern Health, which also has a web presence and a social media presence and as well as uh, at Epworth Hospital, which is a hospital that has actually supported multidisciplinary cancer care really strongly with new initiatives and things like that. I mean, things may have quietened down a little bit in the last six months or so, but I think as we head towards reopening of our communities, that we'd love to see some of these initiatives like in melanoma units and things like that progress. And you can find out more about that on the Epworth Healthcare website. And finally, the Cancer Council website is a really good one. I mean, it has broad range of information, not just skin cancer, but other types of cancer as well. Well, thank you so much for spending your morning with us and sharing so much of your experience and some of the things that you've seen in your practice as well. Thanks very much, Mani. It's been a great. What a fantastic conversation. I always love hearing about experts in their field. And when it comes to things like specialist plastic and reconstructive surgery, it's just so fascinating because we don't see what happens in the operating theater. You know, we see when someone goes in or before they go in, we see when they come out and they're all stitched up and they're all clean and tidy and there might be some bruising, but we don't actually see what is actually the incredible expertise and the incredible training that they have and steadiness of hands and all these techniques that are used in surgery. So I just love hearing about it. It's something that's almost otherworldly. Um, I hope you learned a lot. Skin cancer is, of course, something that we've covered on this podcast before, but it is so important because it's the most common type of cancer in Australia. And in Australia alone, 13,000 Aussies are diagnosed with melanoma. 
almost 980,000 new cases of non-melanoma skin cancers are treated. So it's a really big issue across Australia. And I think the more that we know, uh, the better informed we are, the better we can make choices about being sun safe and skin safe. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as me. Until next week, be skin powered.